this episode of The Full Nerd, Intel's Tom Peterson here to talk ARC graphics. Welcome to a special episode of The Full Nerd. I'm your host, Gordon Ma Ung, with co-host Brad Charkis. Hello, Internet. And special guest, Intel's Tom Peterson. Hello, Internet. And, of course, Adam Patrick Murray, controlling the vertical and horizontal. Uh, it's it's true. I, I'm here. We're, I'm on my new verticals and horizontals, but uh, this, this is just a test. This is just a test. I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm excited to hear what uh, Tom has to say. I, I was not not briefed on any of this so this is this is fun time oh this is cool we're he's our test case so i brad you want to go first or can i go first you, you go honest, first you go first okay so anything that's stupid just jump right in and then you know what <laughs> stupid is my specialty that's what my wife tells me all the time i am really special at that so tom i want to get into the most complicated subject here which is the cores themselves but since Basically, what are we even talking about? You, we haven't even said what we're talking about Intel yet. Why is Tom graphics. even here? Tom is. Oh, you're right. We should. <laughs> it, it, if you don't know, this morning the news finally dropped. We have the first Intel Arc GPUs coming out. They will be in laptops, but you know the same core architecture is across both of them. And uh, what I want to ask uh, Tom about first, though, is about the actual cores themselves. But in a way. So I'm a regular person, and I am unable to absorb the the amount of render slices and the and all that stuff. What's the best way to explain to me what's super special about what makes up the core and, and the XE graphics? Okay, Gordon. Well, first of all, let me just say thanks for inviting me back. I always have a great time talking to you guys. So uh, you did mention today is a big day for us. It's like the it's the it's like our first step. After, you know, just giving birth to this amazing new technology after years of effort, our engineers have been, you know, busily beavering along in the software and the dev tech. It's just, a, it's a, been a tremendous effort. So we're really excited to get our discrete graphics in the hands of our first customers. And I cannot tell you how gratifying that is for me. But back to your question, what makes our core special? Well, I, I look at it in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's all about running existing applications really well. And we have some very fast, very efficient very pipelined XE cores. The XE cores are, think of it as made up of two main units. There's something that we call a vector engine, and the other piece is a matrix engine. So if you if you are familiar with the vector engine, that's pretty much how all shader code is executed. It's SIMD, it's single instruction, multiple data, and it's meant to take advantage of what I've always called embarrassing parallelism that's present in graphics. You know, you have lots of pixels. They all want the same operation to happen on it. So you just apply SIMD instructions. You run all the pixels through the same process. Everything, everybody's happy. We just do that really efficiently. We share a lot of hardware. We get really fast clocks. It all works out. Trust me. Now, the second thing we've done is realize that um, on the, we need a matrix engine. And the reason we need a matrix engine is because AI is everywhere. AI is disrupting every industry. It's becoming the most important workload for graphics other than gaming. And the truth is, we realized a couple of years ago that we need to run AI really, really well. And that's what the vector, I'm sorry, the matrix engine is all about. It uses a, something that's called a systolic array. And uh, the systolic array is all about how do we efficiently pass data uh, between kind of intermediate calculations all for one purpose, and that is to accelerate matrix multiplication. It turns out that matrix multiplication is, is the one thing 
that AI absolutely requires. If you're trying to do any type of inferencing, you know, the core algorithmic processing is matrix multiplication. And a systolic array is sort of like the world's best way to do programmable matrix acceleration. And so that's kind of the core of it. We have a big L1 that accelerates uh, kind of caching. We have a lot of advanced thread scheduling stuff. But I look at it as really that combination of three things, a great vector engine, a brand new giant investment for systolic and matrix acceleration, and then good uh, L1 cache to back all that up with high bandwidth uh, data reads. Oh, what do you think right. of that? Right. No, that's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> good pitch. I, is it? There, oh, go ahead, Brad. There's RT cores in there too, uh, right? Uh, yeah, there are. But I, I, I call the RT cores. You know, our our topology is a little bit uh, different. We have what's called a render slice, and mm-hmm. the the slice includes all the other stuff like geometry and our RT ray, ray tracing units, and each slice uh, includes four cores. So think of it as XE core is the hierarchy below render slice. But you're right, our render slice has a lot of cool technology in it as well. Hardware support for real-time ray tracing, you, you know how, how cool that is. So things like ray traced reflections and global illumination and ambient occlusion and all these effects just get way, way better if you can do really good hardware accelerated ray tracing. And that's what we've built. Um, we also uh, support uh, DX12 Ultimate, which means we do things like variable rate shading and all the all the rest of the goodness that comes for DX12 Ultimate. So all in all, it's a it's a render slice that's sort of our fundamental building block, and we dial down uh, multiple different amounts of render slices to build our SOCs, and and then we kind of derive our products from those SOCs. So the render slice is the fundamental building block, and XE cores are like a a module within the render slice. So can we talk about how many render slices are in the products, I guess? Sure. Uh, well, the way to think about it is we made, you know, we have our architecture, which is XEHPG. That's like the high performance uh, graphics architecture. And that gets embedded into our render slice. And then we build SOCs out of that. So we have two SOCs that we're announcing now. One is called ACMG10. The second one is called ACMG11. The G10 is the big one. The G11 is the little one. We have 32 XE cores in the G10 and eight XE cores in the G11. And then uh, all of the, like the G10 has 256-bit memory interface for GDDR6. And the small core has a 96-bit GDDR6 interface as well. Both of them support four pipes for display. So they have four of our next generation display interfaces on each of the SOCs. So that's the way to think about it. The We build two SOCs and then all of our product stack, you know, the actual chips that we sell are derived from different configurations of those SOCs. So I, I'm, you're calling them SOC, but I'm, is it, why, why is it called an SOC instead of just a straight, a straight processor, I guess? Well, because the way I think about it is, um, you know, it's a system on a chip, which means there's a GPU and there's there's memory and there's I.O. and there's a whole bunch of blocks. So we call it a system on a chip rather than just a GPU. But the more important thing is that SOCs are the silicon that we build. And there's multiple variants of products that are derived from each of those chips. So I like to specify and differentiate the the SOC constructs from products. Okay, speaking of the chip, uh, 
You guys are doing really interesting stuff with all the other stuff that are on that chip, uh, including the display engine and media encoding engine and all that stuff. Uh, you guys are the first GPUs to support AV1 encoding. Yes, we are. Uh, you know, we're so, super excited about that. Go ahead, Brett. So, yeah, I'm just, go. you go ahead. You go ahead, and then if I, you don't answer, I'll follow up. All right. So we are the first uh, GPU to do hardware encoding, hardware acceleration of AV1 encoding. If you don't know for the folks, AV1 is sort of the next generation video codec standard. It does lower bit rates or higher quality at the same bandwidth and gets you basically a better streaming experience. And it's where a lot of the streaming services and a lot of the uh, ingestion services are going to go. We've already done integrations with uh, MPEG and Handbrake and XSplit and others. And you can already see just from those integrations, just how much better the AV1 encoder is going to be. So we're pretty excited. We're kind of we're kind of leading the way and saying the industry is going to be changing because it's just so much better. And we're the first to kind of invest in that a- additional hardware. Yeah. And so, I mean, up to now, because any AV1 encode they're using a handbrake, that's all host-based, right? So you... Yeah, it's all CPU-based. All so CPU-based, about... generally not that yeah, fast. Yeah, this is about 50 times faster. Wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, so that kind of ties in... It seems like this launch, you guys are launching first in these laptops, uh, ARC 3 laptops. Uh, a lot of the features you guys are really proud of and showing off, it felt like, are involved around content creation kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. AV1 encode sounds awesome. Uh, you guys have all these deep link things like uh, hyper encode. Deep link basically has Intel CPU, Intel GPU working together because they're all Intel. Uh, you guys have a thing called hyper encode that basically lets like handbrake or whatever work together. It lets the two G- GPUs work together and do the task. Uh, absolutely. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I tested that in the initial form with the XE max laptop when it came yeah. out, the Acer Swift three X and it like absolutely crushed single GPU performance. Like even with the XE max and the integrated graphics, it crushed uh, RTX 2060 laptop. Uh, this seems like it could be a really compelling platform for creators. Is that like a big thrust for you guys? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the uh, initial models are going to be perfect for creators. It's like a mm-hmm. it's like a creator notebook that you can create on the fly, but you can also play games on, which is a nice benefit. But mm-hmm. uh, let me come back to this deep link thing because that's one of the things that got me most excited when I joined Intel. Believe it or not, the idea. Mm-hmm that Intel has a 30, 40 year kind of portfolio of technology that they've been building that we're now applying in dramatically different ways with the presence of a discrete GPU that we can optimize. So we, we have this thing called um, you know, hyperencode, which is taking advantage of all the encoders on the system. We have another thing called dynamic power sharing, where we're looking at the CPU and the GPU and making decisions about how to shift power from one to the other. By the way, that technology that we uh, introduced today is just at the very beginning. If you If you start thinking about uh, the general uh, way people describe their their platforms, they'll say, "Oh, you know, I'm C- this game is CPU limited, or this game is GPU limited." That mm-hmm. actually turns out to never be true. If you look within the frame, like there's times within the frame that you are CPU limited, or there's times when you are GPU limited. So what we're looking at is 
how do you start getting more predictive and how do you start shifting power on a really tight time scale so that you can really ring out that last level of performance. So this is the kind of stuff that I get excited about hyper encode, you know, dynamic power sharing, and even uh, the, the multi-compute engines, like where we're doing that DaVinci Resolve showing how we can do sharpening using both uh, kind of resources on the, on the CPU and on the GPU. Yeah, I was going to ask you more to if you could talk about more about that specifically, uh, because dynamic power share and hyperencode have been around for a bit. They've obviously been getting better since ZMAX came out, XZMAX. Uh, mm-hmm. But hypercompute is new to me, at least. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the practical effects of that? Like, what at a practical level, like this is a consumer laptop launch that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. What can a person who buys this laptop? What can they expect to get out of hypercompute? Well, hypercompute is all about uh, taking advantage of all the different compute blocks that are available in your system. So if you have an Intel CPU inside of that guy, you've got a, a disc, you know, kind of an integrated GPU that has a pretty beefy compute engine, right? They've got vectors and they've got lots of DP4A support. And now you've got next to that, this XMX block that has a heavier sort of more matrix accelerated style. So can we leverage both of those to do a common problem? The answer turns out yes, because we've built a middle layer, uh, I think it's called MLS, that does scheduling across all of the compute blocks that are available in your hardware. So this this yields kind of the best of both worlds. A large majority of notebooks are shipping with Intel processors today. And now when you connect those with the new Intel discrete engines, you're going to get basically free performance. And that's what the hypercompute technology does. So Earl, I have a question. So you were talking about the uh, dynamic power sharing, because right now it's it's basically adjusting in milliseconds. Yeah, every hundred milliseconds right now. Uh, but it sounds like when you say within the frame, as we move forward, as we're going to yeah. get to the point, I mean, we're already at that point where, uh, frankly, most of the CPUs are hitting boost clocks you can't even see because they're so short. So is it possible we're going to get to the point where you're you're shifting performance in the microseconds even down to the nanoseconds like i mean i don't know about nanosecond right because there's some system uh system level constraints that are going to make a nanosecond problem hard but i will say that there's i have a general belief that says the faster we can make decisions then uh the less margin we leave on the table and so to make faster decisions it costs something right you got to get better monitoring you got to build whoa you got to build better hardware systems so there's a cost um, but the benefit is you're extracting this extra, you know, performance parallelism. And what that trade-off is, we don't know. But I, I got to believe it's faster than 100 milliseconds. And yeah. we're kind of heading that way. Wow. Huh. And that is, the, and this dynamic power sharing is not a Windows thing only. That'll be across other. Yeah, that's, that's across. All, well, you know, right now there is a driver element that is the algorithm that's running under Windows that does this dynamic power sharing. But again, this gets back to, well, you don't want to do, you know, sub millisecond decision making using a Windows driver. You want to have something a little bit lower level. Maybe it's in the firmware, maybe it's in the hardware. And I feel like this is just at that, uh, you know, really we've taken the first step. And that's the way I feel about a lot of this stuff. Our products are fantastic, but it's it's just a gigantic first step for us. And as we start doing more of this platform level integration, I, I really do think the sky's the limit. All right. While we're talking about 
speeds and feeds and stuff like that. I had a just was wondering if you could talk about the clock speeds because if you take a peek at these slides, like at first blush, it seems like hey, nine hundred megahertz for one of these. It seems kind of low, uh, but you guys are using a totally new metric to calculate this stuff, and I was wondering if you could explain that a bit because I think that might cause some confusion for folks. Yeah, I'm not surprised, and we we've, we've debated this long and hard. Brad, the point you're bringing up is we've defined a new metric or a new spec that we're going to call graphics clock. And what the graphics clock refers to is sort of like the, the expected clock or higher that you're going to see on our worst case TDP environment. So when you look at our SKUs, especially for notebooks, some of those SKUs have very low TDP numbers associated with them, which means that the clock is going to be more constrained. And so in the worst case app and the worst case thermal environment, you're going to see a relatively low graphics clock spec. Now, most of the time, when you're running in a little bit freer environment, you're running a little bit lighter workload, you're going to see higher clocks, even on the low-end SKUs. But the problem is, how do you set expectations correctly for gamers? If I tell you that we're going to get a 2 gigahertz clock all the time, and you start seeing you know, 1.5, 1 1.4, 1 you're going to be like, hey, this is, this is, not, what I, this is not what I was promised. <clears throat> so from my perspective, I'd rather be conservative on clocks and over-deliver uh, on the runtime experience. And if people make their decisions, hopefully people will learn, you know, what does it mean when, you know, when Intel says graphics clock? It means that it's the typical clock you can expect to see on our worst-case thermal environment um, running uh, effectively within the TDP envelope uh, of the worst-case specification. So it's kind of like a uh, base clock, like it's, for it's, CPUs? It's, I mean, if you if you think about the way uh, the green team does it, it's actually closer to boost clock. So okay. it's not quite it's not quite base clock. It's not quite it's really not quite boost clock, but it's definitely not uh, peak clock either. You know, <laughs> it's it's something in the middle, which is kind of trying to be as transparent as we can about what we expect clock behavior to be. I, I would say there was a debate that we were having about, do we need to be talking about clocks at all in, in, this, in this moment, where really it's more about delivered platform performance, and it's yeah. about what the reviews say. So what is the clock adding in this conversation? But at the end of the day, it turns out to be important, especially as we start getting towards more uh, discrete uh, graphics cards, right? Because this is where sort of the clock wars will get more intense. Yeah, and I, I do think like it is a problem because people can't compare Team Red clock versus Team Green clock, and and now it feels like you just gotta like, well, here's Team Blue clock. You can compare it within the same family, yes. but not yes. against each other. Is what it's very true, Gordon. That's the way I think about it as well. Where we're trying to say we're we're measuring these clocks all the same method for the blue team. Now, what the green team does or the red team does, you know, I, I can't really speak to that. I mean, I shouldn't really speak to that, uh, but I can I can say that uh, what we're doing here on Team Blue is meaning to be as transparent as possible, and yet still give you a sense as you go up the stack of you know if a number's higher than the other one, uh, especially if it's in the same family, then it's going to tell you which one's going to be faster. So you mentioned the clock seeds will matter when you talk when you get to <coughs> desktop processors or desktop graphics chips, etc., etc. Et yep. uh, I was wondering if you could talk to why you guys decided to launch in laptops, especially more affordable laptops, before going out with the higher versions. You know that is a that's a fantastic question, Brad, because it's 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 going to the core of what is Intel all about. So we're taking a very measured approach to this. We're starting from our strength, which is we ship the the, the majority of notebooks, and we want to make those notebook platforms 
just that much better and make sure you know we can do all the platform integration that everybody expects from us. Excuse me again. So um, that's the way I look at it. You can see the history of innovation everywhere from USB, Thunderbolt, you know, Wi-Fi, and now discrete graphics plugging into that platform, doubling performance gen on gen. Discrete is going to be a totally different bag. Right, because we're we're entering a market where there's strong, you know, strong entrenched competitors that have had a duopoly for, you know, a long time. So we're going to be very humble, and we're going to come in, you know, basically saying, "Hey, we're pretty excited about where we are, and we're excited about the future because we're getting our sea legs, right? We're we're kind of getting our, you know, getting our game going. And right mm-hmm. now, we're pretty excited with where we landed, but we're even more excited with where we're going." Should we, uh, you know, and actually we probably should add them on, we're, we'll show the slide so, so we don't have to go over the actual model numbers, but you've got ARC-3, ARC-5, ARC-7, so we're going to see ARC-3 first, basically, is that today, I guess? Is it available uh, yeah, starting it's now? available starting now for pre-order, you can order the thing today, um, but you're going to see a lot of additional models showing up in uh, April and May, and then later this summer, you're going to see ARC-5 Arc and ARC-7, so our... our we are in the market. We're playing the game. You know, we're, we're going to see what people think about our graphics, and I'm I'm super excited about. It. So you're um you're the newcomer here. So pardon pardon don't offend you, but people only speak this me, way. Right? Like people go like, well, is Arc three a, a thirty seventy or a thirty eighty or a thirty fifty or an MX? You know, that's sort of yeah. like or compared to Radeon or. They they always yeah. that's the only way people think is the existing uh, products. Where, yeah, where no, does our totally three? Who's gonna who's that, who's that gonna fight against? Well, let's start with the way I think about it, and then we can talk about what reviewers might say or press might say. The way I think about it is we're we're here to deliver a great performance for a notebook platform, and what we're focusing on is hey, can you play the top games that you care about at the frame rate that you care about, and can you do it in a form fact that form factor that's awesome, and can you uh, get a price that you like? So at that, and that total solution is kind of our first priority. Now, I know reviewers are going to ignore that entirely, and they're going to go off and run their their performance ben- benchmark. So I I don't want to prefetch that, and I'm gonna I'm gonna basically say we know that no matter what we say on benchmarks, it's almost you know it's not, take it with a grain of salt. You're going to go do your own thing, and I encourage you to do that, and then we'll we'll see where the you know see where we lie. I think it's going to be interesting because our belief on Arc three it's about the experience that we deliver for that category of user. And then obviously, as you go up the stack, you're going to see higher performance. So during the presentation uh, that I was, I was, you know, privy to, uh, basically it breaks down as ARC3 laptops are going to be roughly 60 frames per second or higher in AAA games at medium or high settings at 1080p and over 90 frames per second in many of the top esports games. Yes. Uh, but the, these first Arc 3 laptops, they also said there a lot of them are going to be Intel Evo models. So should we expect these laptops to be just as thin and portable as previous Evo laptops? Yes, you'll see the Evo platform itself sort of defines a thin and light form factor. There's not, there mm-hmm. are no like big chunky Evo platforms. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we live within that TDP constraint and still deliver the performance that's required. Oh. That's interesting. Yeah, you can see on the uh, the TDP power numbers that we gave, the ARC-3 is between 25 and 35 watts. Um, the 370 is between 35 and 50 watts. So we're talking a, a power-constrained graphics device. And uh, that's why we can afford to fit into these thin and light Evo platforms. 
All right. You know, I'm, I'm, and you're right because reviewers are the ones that are off that generally sort of set the world what they what they expect. But I kind of wonder if it's going to be this interesting thing where, like in some things, you may clean other competitors' clocks because like, nobody. If you do an AV one encode, we're going to you're going to crush everybody <laughs> because they don't have hardware AV one encode. True. So how do you weigh that? And it's you know versus I think, you know, I, I, I think the market is going to shake all this out, Gordon. I really do. People are going to be if you're a creator and you're looking for a thin and light laptop that you can do all your content creation on and you want to play some light gaming in the evening and you're like, I wish I could do this all in one device. Well, you know, this is kind of the device for that excellent battery life because of power sharing hyper encode. I, I feel like it's, it's kind of the perfect product for that particular consumer. And it's a good place for us to start because it, it leverages a lot of the technologies that we can bring to bear for creator. And also it leverages our deep relationship with ISVs. And we can get these things like, you know, the, the compute sharing and the hyper encode stuff done. So I, so to me, the, the really important message of, you know, performance uh, on, on windows and on the PC going forward is it is about developer relations. It, it is about having optimizations from, you know, uh, independent uh, software development, you know, ISVs for, for your hardware. And you know how hard that is it, are we going to be there on day one for for Arc, or and is it just simply going to be one of the things where it'll take five years to get developers to board the the train? I don't think so. I think you've already seen that we've announced um, several of the availability uh, applications for AV1 encoding, as an example, and hyper encoding, and we've also showed you the DaVinci example on uh, the compute sharing kind of stuff. So I, I feel like you're right. On the one hand, first, let me, let me give you, you're right. It is all about <laughs> developer relationships and dev tech and integration, getting the right uh, technology inside of the game so that they can leverage your hardware. But the more that we can do by providing middle layers of software like MLS that make all of that easier, uh, that's key. And the good news is this is kind of where Intel is super strong, right? We have a long history of open standards and, and working with the software ecosystem. You know, we love Linux. We, we are all about um, what's the best way and the fastest way to accelerate the software ecosystem. And sometimes you got to do that heavy lifting yourself where your, your dev tech engineers are kind of like partnered up with the individual ISVs, but it's even more powerful if we can find ways to do these layers that, that accelerate things, kind of like OpenVINO. You know, OpenVINO accelerates all kinds of media, and it does it now in a way that it's aware of multi-compute engines. And it's open, too, right? OpenVINO is open in the name. It's got the name, right? It, so. Right in the name. Come on. I am interested because you, you do have one of the things you cited was uh, Topaz Video video Enhance, which mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. an, it's a really awesome uh, application, but running it on the CPU is pretty painful. So yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm really excited to see how Arc does with, uh, with it. I think it's going to be good. I mean, I, I've seen multiple demos where, it, you know, it's kind of night and day before and after it refreshes your old videos and your old photos and it makes them look like, Hey, this is something I wouldn't mind showing, you know, wouldn't mind taking a perusal of. So they do things that are also using AI. So they do the denoising and they also do the upscaling and upsampling and, and the output of the videos using all these different compute blocks. is just beautiful. Yeah. This is, I've played around with it too. It feels like magic sometimes at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's super cool. So, touching on that, I I agree that Intel has super strong software developer relations. Like, 
hyper-encode, hyper-compute, all the steep link stuff, I have no doubt that you guys will get adoption pretty quickly. I'd be surprised if you didn't. Uh, you guys are new on the graphics side of things, though, and XESS is brand-new technology, obviously, coming out, which does, in fact, tap into those XMX cores and take advantage of all that. Uh, what's XESS going to be like on day one? Well, uh, we've announced 14 titles that will be available with the mid-range of the GPUs when they become available. Um, mm-hmm. We're doing integrations right now that are just going really, really well. We have an SDK for doing an XESS integration. We've got folks engaging with lots of different Tier 1 titles. And the good news is that because of what XESS is and the way that it interfaces with the render pipeline, it's very mm-hmm. similar to other types of uh, graphics technologies like you know temporal anti-aliasing. And so because of that, the integration with ISVs is actually relatively straightforward. There's no resources that they've never exposed that they got to go figure out where they are in the pipeline. This, this type of integration has been done before. Now, I, I think that as we start going forward, there is a question about um, how do different effects that are constantly perturbing, you know, different game developers. Can we do something better that's going to be less disruptive going forward? And I, I hope the answer to that is yes. And we're, we're looking into several different avenues to do that. So that, you know, the faster this cycle runs, where we develop a technology, it gets integrated into a game, and then users can use it and experience it, that cycle, the faster that runs, the better for everybody. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, just... Last week at Game Developer Conference, uh, NVIDIA announced Streamline, which is kind of like an open framework to encapsulate all these different upscaling options. Uh, And you guys were the first one out of the gate supporting that. So what what are your thoughts around that program? Well, you know, I I obviously I know all those guys and I'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic. I I feel like it's it's the first time that we've tried to partner with NVIDIA like this, where we're we're kind Mm -hmm. of having a, a common cause with ISVs. We have a lot to figure out yet. You know, this is this is sort of like in its very beginning, but from a technologies perspective, we're definitely trying to solve a big problem for ISVs, which is I've got all these different vendors coming to me. Everybody's different. They're all very similar, but I still have to rip up my code and I have to do all the verification. Can you make this easier? And that's really what the technique that we're talking about with this new uh, open interface is trying to do. Now, can we find a way to work with NVIDIA effectively? I really do hope so. And, And all indications are that we will be able to. But don't get me wrong, that doesn't slow us down on any of the other things we're already doing. We're, we're moving full speed ahead with our XCSS integrations. And maybe someday this new technology will arrive and it'll help solve problems. And we'll support that as well, is really my, my view of this. All right. Go ahead, Gordon. Uh, can I ask you about the, you had a couple two, there's a couple two, couple of new sync technologies that you're introducing with ARC. Yes. Can you explain which situation you'd use uh, them in? Because yes. So I, the, that... the ones you're referring to, there's actually sadly named three syncs that we talk about mm-hmm. with Arc. Okay. <laughs> the number one, sadly named Adaptive Sync, which I still am not a big fan of that name, but that's the Visa standard for uh, how variable refresh rate technology works. And Adaptive Sync, we 100% support. I'm very passionate about variable rate uh, interface technology, and that is going to work 100% on Intel Arc. So that's in the back. Now, the problem is when you don't have uh, an adaptive sync monitor, you've got some problems. So SpeedSync is our first uh, technology that we're going to be talking about. It's an Intel-only technology, but it's a pretty simple thing to understand. When you have a high 
frame rate game that's running at like 180 or 200 frames per second, and you turn VSync off. The reason VSync's off is because if you turn it on, the frame rate will drop and your latency will explode. So most esports players have VSync off and you're running really high frame rates. And what that does to your screen is you get this sort of like tearing everywhere because you're having really high frame rates, you get multiple multiple tears per frame. And it absolutely looks like, uh, you know, not great. So um, the solution that we've come up with is effectively to do frame subsampling. And what that means is we've virtualized the swap chain. And that means we, behind an application's back, we're gonna say, hey, vSync's off. So go ahead and run full speed. Don't, don't pace anything, just spit the frames out as fast as you can and we'll flip to them. Well, under the cover, what's really happening is we're showing full frames. So we're just gonna show one frame and they're gonna render multiple frames underneath it. And then we're gonna pick one, we're gonna show the next frame. So you don't have any tearing and latency is very, very low. That's the benefit of SpeedSync. And it's targeted at these games that have really fast render rates. The third technology that we're talking about here is SmoothSync, which is again, a completely different animal. SmoothSync is really targeted at games that have a slightly lower render rate, but you still, you know, you're not turning on vSync because it would make it even chunkier. So now how can you make that experience better without a variable rate monitor? And what we've actually invented is pretty cool. Inside of our display engine, we actually have a few scan lines of data. So what we're doing with that data is saying whenever a tear is about to happen or whenever a tear has just happened, we're going to blur from the prior uh, frame to the new frame. And instead of having the stark tear line, there's going to be this gradual fade between these two frames. And what that does is it kind of gets rid of that acceleration that you see when you see this tear line. Your brain goes, oh, that's weird. You know, something just jumped. By blurring across that boundary, you can make it a much softer experience for your eye, and you don't get as disrupted by tearing. So both of those technologies are Intel only, and they're going to be shipping with Arc when we launch. And they both that's sort a, of... That's, go ahead. That's really interesting. I can't wait to try that out in practice, because it's that hard cut that really messes with your eyes. So I'm really curious to see if this yeah. makes a big difference. I mean, I did do a little research about this some time ago, where it was sort of like monkey brain stuff, where <laughs> your, your eyes are somehow... Uh, evolved to detect you know really sharp motion and changes in acceleration and what a tear line does is your brain is saying something just jumped right in, mm-hmm. in position in space it, i expected the head to be here but it's actually jumped to the left and your brain goes what the hell <laughs> so, so by so by blurring that a little bit across that boundary you can kind of tamp down that deep monkey inside of your brain and uh, hopefully we're going to see some gamers that enjoy the technique that's that's passed on for millions of years of that last thing you see is the lion's jaws like oh it's tearing mm-hmm. oh, no exactly. okay that's that's exactly right Gordon. but they both they both really sort of prioritize latency so you'll you'll still get the latency benefits but less less jarring is what exactly. it sounds like exactly neither of these technologies turn vsync on they're both vsync off you're both you're run you're running your render pipeline at full speed and you're getting the lowest possible latency. We're using our hardware uh, section of the display block to do this whole uh, blending thing. And then the other one, we're using the virtualized flip buffer, the virtualized swap chain to uh, effectively subsample out of the out of the you know kind of the final rendered frames. So speaking of brains, uh, SpeedSync <laughs> sounds somewhat familiar, uh, similar to NVIDIA's FastSync. Which... You know, Brad, that is that's an interesting observation. It does All sound right. very similar to me. 
It does. And if I remember correctly, you were the one who presented that at the GTX 10 series launch back in the day. So is, you keep saying adaptive sync is a personal, you know, love of yours. <laughs> is something like speed sync a personal love uh, of yours? I as love well? it too. I think they're great technologies. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I don't want to take credit for any of it. That's just part of yeah. a bigger team, right? And everybody's, yeah, everybody's working on, uh, on trying to make the gaming experience as good as you possibly can. And, 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 and we're not done, right? There's millions of the, you know, Hey, good news. Intel is, is in the game on gaming and, and we're, we're a, a very written kind of like broad company with lots of different techniques and lots of different ideas. And now we're laser focused on making these experiences better. So you, you can, you can, you can kind of assume that, yeah, these are pretty cool, but there's more to come. Yep. Along those lines, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, and this again leverages you guys' uh, XMX AI technologies. Uh, you guys also have the new art control overlay and management software, yep. which is great. Love to see it. Uh, one of the things that interested me about it is the fact that it does have so many AI tools inside of it. It has various mm-hmm. AI broadcasting tools, yeah. but it has automatic game highlights, too, that's handled by AI in some way. Yeah. Uh, could you talk about that? That's interesting. Well, the, the, the idea is, um, yeah, we ought to be able to build a network that is just like you and me. If, if I, I often say if, if a human can do something that you can explain to somebody else, then it's probably likely that you can train an AI network to do the same thing. So mm-hmm. if you're watching a stream and you see a bunch of gameplay that you're like snoring through, but then all of a sudden, you know, somebody starts bashing on, a, on an enemy and you start seeing lightning flashing everywhere, you know, this is a highlight. So effectively, we can take that that kind of training where you say this type of gameplay is not that exciting, but these moments are very exciting, and you can train a network to uh, recognize that. Now, once you've trained a network to recognize this different gameplay uh, intensity, you can use that to trigger capture, and that's really what Game Highlights is all about. It says based on a certain type of activity that we've become that we've learned represents exciting gameplay. Let's turn on and turn off our our capture around that. Awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Now, the other thing I don't think we mentioned in the presentation, but I want to make sure everybody knows, is that everything that we're doing in uh, Arc Control is done through APIs. So I'm sorry, Intel is a very open company in terms of our APIs. There's a new API called Control API, which is not, you know, not a surprise. It's actually out there now. You can take a look at it. And that is the way that third-party applications like uh, Afterburner or, or RevaTuner or any of those kind of things, Asus's thing or, or MSI's or Gigabytes, all of those applications can use this API to access the same uh, GPU functions that you'll see inside of our control. Um, so it's pretty cool. We're, we're, we're basically saying our control is our reference. It's pretty cool because it does a real-time overlay, has very low overhead. It's very, you know, kind of zippy. It does all of our driver download stuff. But if there's a third party that wants to get on, get in the game, uh, we make all of that available to them directly. That's right. Uh, and for I just need to ask, even though I know the answer, but for the port nerds, because people want to know about the ports, mm-hmm. what port specs do you support? Because there's somebody port who's nerds watching. on display. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so display, we support DP 1.4A. And let me see if I can pull it up here so I don't misspeak. DP 1.4A, we HDMI 2.0B, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. H, HB, uh, and let me see one more here. HDMI 2.0B. And then, oh, yeah. The cool thing is we do two 8K60 HDR and four at 4K120 HDR. And then we even do 
support, early support for 2.0, 10 gig on DP. So that's a future kind of thing. The spec's not completely solid yet, but we do think we're 2.0, 10 gig ready on the DP. So, and that's uh, even on these more affordable Arc three laptops. Yep, yep. Same. Uh, wow. All the all of the all of the all the SOCs have the same uh, four display pipes. Now, of course, it's up to the OEMs and their chassis about how do these ports get you know pinned out. But the technology is enabled on the SOC and on the chips. Uh, and then also, how's it plumbed? Because I know that the Arc three is, I think, on a is it it's uh, eight lanes of Gen four. Eight, eight, eight lanes of Gen 4 on Arc 3. And then and, 5 and 7 or um, 16, I think? 16 lanes of Gen 4 on uh, Arc 5. Yeah, on, on Gen 4. What? Because I'm just interested because I'm I'm not sure how that works out because uh, Alder Lake is eight lanes of Gen 4. So well, it's well, sort again, of... the, the displays are directly off of the GPU. Right, so the the configuration when we're when we're connecting to these four heads does not go through Alder Lake. Oh. There's a whole bunch right, of right. local connectivity. Yep. It, it you know there's still going to be these hybrid configurations that have displays that connect off of Alder Lake, but um, that's not really what we're talking about with the native uh, ports off of Alchemist. Cool, uh, and then yeah. I I I want to ask because I I I know there's something else coming supposedly that is desktop tease what what can you say about that today uh well i cannot say much about that except that there's a desktop tease and if you watch the video you will see the tease <laughs> worth a shot but i gotta say i'm excited you can tell i'm excited look at me i'm excited <laughs> and uh i've been waiting for this for a while so I, pretty cool that is actually kind of like one of my winding it down questions is is it too late now? Because I know, people have been like just screaming at Intel, please get these things out to us. You know, we haven't been able to buy GPUs for two, two and a half years now. Yeah, it feels like the pressure is getting, you know, not as bad. It's feel I don't know where the supply is suddenly coming from, but now it feels like oh, maybe things are getting better. Is it? Is there enough? Is the window still going to be there, or is that not even a factor in Intel's plans for? I don't just... think it's a factor for me. I don't, and for Intel in general, it's not a factor. We think that being in the discrete GPU business is critical for Intel long term for many, many different reasons. And and right now, there's been this weird glitch with mining and consuming a lot of GPUs that's led to the artificial uh, price elevation and capacity constraints. But I, I'm glad to see a lot of that's easing up. But at the end of the day, uh, I think it all turns out to be, what's the capability that we offer? And is it going to be something that our customers uh, desire? And then we'll share, we'll sell our fair share. And if we price it too high, we'll sell less. And if we price it you know, low, we'll sell more. So at the end of the day, Gordon, I'm a firm believer in the market is going to figure this out. And if we ha- if we happen to launch into an extremely high uh, GPU price market, we're going to do what we can to try to get our, our GPUs into the hands of gamers. And Raj has said that, and I, I applaud him for it. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to do. And maybe we won't need to do it because the market will normalize before then, but I don't expect it to completely. So uh, like, like uh, Raj has said, we're going to do our best uh, when, it, when it comes time. Do I have time for kind of a pie in the sky question? Or do you have a hard out in two minutes? Brad, I'm here for you, man. You can All right. pie in the sky me. All right. So during the press briefing, uh, you used the term neurographics a bunch, which I found pretty interesting. Did I? Did I? Oh. <laughs> so you're basically talking about how 
uh, you know, blending AI with uh, traditional render tests, which Mm -hmm. last time you were on the show, you talked about that quite a bit. Like you seemed really excited by that as well. Just as excited you were just saying, yeah, you're talking about the Nirvana is AI's hallucinating fully without traditional render stuff. You were talking about, you know, maybe we could get rid of tessellation. Jesus, did I say that? (laughs) That's crazy. Stuff like that in the background. Crazy. But Raja also, you just brought up Raja. He also brought up, he did a Powering the Metaverse uh, post back in December, talking about how we need to reach a thousand times the power of today's, you know, high end, what we can do. Uh, You guys seem to be betting pretty hard in AI. Do you think that's a major slice of Powering the Metaverse vision? Well, I'm going to defer metaverse to Raja because he's a lot more uh, <laughs> versed, versed in that than I am. But mm-hmm. I think I think we all agree. Anybody anybody in the industry agrees that mm-hmm. AI is the most disruptive thing to arise since effectively the industrial revolution. And and I would not say that stuff lightly. It's it's disrupting every business in every category. It's making new winners and it's it's forcing new losers. Right. So. I feel like AI and graphics are a natural uh, mate and not just AI and graphics, but AI and you pick your name for pretty much anything else. And uh, it's going to be, it's going to be big. Trust me. It's going to be big. And that's why uh, I I talk about it when people, you know, when I get the chance. All right. And I think that this whole idea of, can you someday have an AI that's doing more than just upsampling? I think that is a, a very, very clear yes on you will have AIs that do more than just upsampling. Because if you think about it, the the idea of I have metadata that's represented by a frame, it might be more like a game engine that says, hey, I, I here's my set of data that represents the frame I'm about to draw. And instead mm-hmm. of taking that data and putting it into a render pipeline, if you could have the state plus that new metadata and give it into an AI and it spits out the new frame, I mean, we are decades away from that kind of stuff, but uh, that's the idea, right? How much of that pipeline really makes sense to move into AI? And it's more than just uh, upscaling. Wow. All right. Yeah. A little thing <laughs> the way out, right? <laughs> yeah. I can't think of anything better to think about. Cause that, I mean, that, I mean, that's going to be amazing. Of course it's, decades away but basically the way i think about it is is we've come all that way with uh, ray tracing and all the work that the game engine guys are doing working now with the film industry if you think about this whole thing it's becoming converged between movies and uh cg and then real-time graphics so the next step beyond that is like well maybe how do you redo the content pipeline because the content pipeline today is still just a mess. It's very difficult. And, and you'd like that to become much more, uh, you know, take the hard work out of it for the content creator and, and put AI in the place of that. Hmm. No, I mean, why go to the movies? You just simply can. I mean, that's what video games, <laughs> yeah. that's what the movie industry has been so worried about video games for such a long time, because you're playing a 50 hour movie interactively in a lot of games pretty pretty soon it's going to be um more difficult to tell i I don't think we're quite there yet gordon but honestly you know we're not we're not decades away on that one yeah maybe michael may will make a video game next you never know you You can put more explosions in that way so there's some more speculation that's two speculative comments at the end (laughs) (laughs) do you have any more questions gordon no, I mean, you know, this is just all like I I I 
I again, I just kind of want to see the hardware, and I think you're right. I, I think we're going to have to get get it into people's hands and see how people judge it, and that's ultimately what matters. I, I just hope that everybody can always interpret a new part correctly because I do think the sexy part of this really is on the AI and, and content creation side, which mm. you know I, I'm really excited for because I'm also really excited for. Right? I mean, because you're if nice. you're gonna, AV if. You know, I I can tell you immediately that in AV1 encode, if you know, if, I'm certain it'll be crush the competition, including the ones made in Cupertino, and right. So I think it's, and then well, how do you judge that 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 value? Yeah, it's so, hard. It's hard. It's very hard we're for not, a viewer. I I would I would say we're in a we're in a platform world, right? Where where we used to be thinking about, oh, you know what? I'll just do an FPS chart. And uh, the truth is you can still do that. And we're not going to, you know, we're not, I'm not going to fault you if you do that, but there's a lot more going on and people are making purchase decisions for a lot more than that, especially in this segment, right? When you look at the uh, creator of thin and light notebooks, you know, people are like, yeah, FPS, but maybe I'll turn on, you know, counter-strike once in a while, but really I'm all about what's my transcode look like. Right. And how fast and uh, the, and, and the, you know, again, like using Topaz Lab stuff, yep, all the AI. Yep. It's really a really uh, a big, huge blind spot that I think is kind of missed by a lot of traditional meat and potatoes kind of games yep, reviewers. Yep. So, yeah. we'll, we'll see. In there. <laughs> we shall see. That's your new, that's your new thing. <laughs> Check back next week for your fix of PC talk on the full nerd. For audio listeners, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Send questions and comments to the fullnerd.pcworld.com. And if you're on one of the services, please do leave a review. Every time you do, we get a, a new entrant to the GPU marketplace. Thanks for coming. I'm Gordon Nung with Brad Charkas. Adios. Tom Peterson. Thanks, guys. And Adam Patrick Burns is going to hit the off switch. Uh, always great having you here, Tom. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, and we will see everybody later. Bye.